0: This is the Thursday Night Podcast, your source for news, analysis, and all things Georgia State sports, because every day is Thursday. Hello and welcome back to a non-emergency edition of the Thursday Night Podcast, episode 211 this week. My name is Jordan and I'm joined today by Brady and David. We're still tracking all the latest with the search for Georgia State's next head football coach and we'll dive into that to start. But in addition, we're going to look at each of the Panthers basketball teams, one-on-one weeks and a disappointing opening weekend for baseball. But gentlemen, uh, as I promised in the opening read, is there any new stuff in the football head coaching search that we need to be uh, made aware of?
1: So I guess the biggest news that isn't really news is interviews have started this week. This is going to be a big action week for all. Like I would expect, I think for an an ideal world for Charlie Cobb and the department, probably someone's getting announced. Maybe end of next week, maybe just sometime next week, and like the introductory press conference will be a week after that. I, that's not going off of anything I've heard. I just I feel like they want to move this pretty quickly, and the part of that now is they had done the initial evaluations getting feelers, having people reach out and set who they want to talk to. And that's really starting this week. Uh, Another thing is significantly less important, I think especially judging by the fact that the school has not announced this yet, even though it got a little bit leaked at the end of last week, weekend time, whatever. Um, Strength coach Mike Siriano, uh, Bruce Feldman of The Athletic, reported is going to be named, has been named the interim head coach for the Georgia State football program right now. Uh, I say significantly less important because he's not a candidate for the job and Georgia State is neither going to play in a game nor do practices uh, anytime soon. So this is a steadying, keeping the guy who would have been seeing them every day anyway now that spring practices have been closed again. Uh, But it was certainly an interesting thing. Um, Got a lot of play on Twitter from people having fun with the idea of having a strength coach as a college football head coach. Uh, But I think not nearly as serious as maybe an unusual interim situation because there's no game to be played here. But those are kind of the, I guess that's what we know. Um, There's still a lot to play out and these interviews are happening. And the other thing we know, like I mentioned, spring practice has been paused. And the reason we know this for sure is that Georgia State Football's Twitter account put out a statement today from Charlie Cobb saying they received a waiver from the NCAA to pause spring practice. Uh, special thanks to the NCAA and Chris Johnson and academics and membership affairs. Uh Someone had to put that press release together after someone, someone or someone's had to have these conversations that I don't think any of us knew actually had to happen for spring practice not to happen. So I wanted to include it on the pod because it's some college sports bureaucracy that I think none of us knew really needed to happen. And uh there you go. I have given the pub for those people who had to put in at least like a 20 minutes and do all that that entailed.
2: Yeah, honestly, I didn't know that that was a thing, and when I saw it, I was, I was curious on if this was like a they had to do this type situation, or like what was the ramifications if they didn't do this?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if there were any. I don't know if they needed to have put it out. I assume this kind of stuff would happen in extreme circumstances, like I don't know, like a global pandemic. Like I'm sure that there was some spring practices got interrupted by that. Uh, this is just on a much smaller scale and it just speaks to just the total randomness of this whole timing of everything like having it interrupt spring practice because you started spring practice so early uh it's all just so funny and uh yeah i just will be a lot more excited when we have a lot more concrete stuff to talk about and probably i i suspect by the time we record next week there will be more if we are not summoned by our own sirens and to having to do an emergency one before that point. But excited to see what direction it goes, especially as we get more and more concrete word of who they're actually talking to versus names thrown out there that might not be all like actually in for this job and who's in for this job that might take other opportunities. Uh, the one candidate note to make someone that I know we had mentioned or I had mentioned on the emergency pod, Brian McClendon. Georgia wide receivers coach, pass game coordinator. Adam Schefter reported he is taking the Tampa Bay Buccaneers wide receivers coach job. Uh, it has not been confirmed by the team. Uh, I don't think Georgia's made any comment about it either. But McClendon has updated his Twitter to say that he is the receivers coach of the Buccaneers. And so a little bit of cold water on one of the hotter names that had been out there since the job opened. Uh, we will see where that progresses in the next week, I am sure, as well.
2: Yeah, I don't have a crystal ball or anything, um, but it's gonna be interesting to see where the candidates lie. Um, I wish there was a little bit more, you know, solid names. Like like I think the the funny thing about the last basketball head coach search was it was kind of immediately like, oh, here's a slam dunk name. Oh, Georgia State interviewed the slam dunk name. Then we didn't hear anything, and then obviously Coach Hayes got the job. So it's like I wish that football would move that quickly, but also, hey, it's probably okay football. that it's night.
1: Because the NFL, they have to. and That's fair. I had that thought where it's like, it would be so much nicer if college programs had to announce kind of like the NFL or chose to announce like the NFL. But that would be so messy because you've got coaches that are going to be applying for jobs that don't want them to get out They're applying for the job. Because if they don't get it, then their fan base is going to hate them for looking to get out of wherever they're at. And so... I do think it's probably for the best that is not the case in college athletics because there's so many more teams, so many more variables, so many more potential coaches where it's a lot more contained with the NFL. Although I guess it's breaking a little bit to contain with all these college coaches that are taking these NFL positions. So maybe they're dealing with a little bit of that. But uh, the other side of that is, look, if you've got sitting head coaches going from G5s to P5s to take position coach jobs... College football writ large is not going to try and change based off of that, even if they're saying like this NIL situation or roster situation or whatever is the reason. But if you keep having college assistants leaving for similar jobs in the NFL just for the sake of it being just the football side of things, ironically of all, that might be the thing that makes something change in the regulation of this sport of with recruiting, with the portal, with everything. And so Even though Georgia football is not a sympathetic figure in the, you know, in the state of college football, they are one of the behemoths of the sport. (laughs) This is the type of thing that might actually make something change where these big programs are like, hold on, we don't want to be losing these guys for the same job in the NFL for like not that different of pay. We got to figure something out here to make sure they want to stay. So I'm not super optimistic it means anything major, but... That is my takeaway from just kind of the general state and especially with these NFL moves that have been happening where it's like if something was gonna make a change, it wasn't gonna be us mere G five schools complaining about it. It was gonna be someone bigger. And that that's kind of the change that has been happening the last couple of coaching cycles, it feels like.
0: All right, so let's go ahead and move on to basketball. Starting with the men, it was a one and one week for the men as they could not overcome allowing a 17 nothing run to start Thursday's game with James Madison losing 83 to 63 before a down to the wire win Saturday night at Old Dominion, scoring the final seven points to escape 68 to 65 winners. The split leaves them 12 and 14 on the year and 6 and 8 in Sunbelt play. Gentlemen, thoughts on these two games?
1: In their own ways, each of these games was ugly. Uh, but the big ticket takeaway for me is kind of where you needed to be. Like I don't think you were expecting to go pull a road upset against James Madison. And it's frustrating because they only were outscored by three after that 17-0 run. And so really the takeaway was you play any kind of competitive first five minutes of that game. If you're able to keep it ratchet up like you did in the second half. Might be more of a game. You might be making James Madison sweat anymore. But at the end of the day, one and one was kind of what I expected. And even if it was a lot more hard work than it maybe needed to be against Old Dominion on Saturday, you end the week with the win. You get the win in the game that you, I feel like you kind of needed to have, especially if you're still trying to get a winning record. Do the best you can for your space in the Sunbelt standings when all said and done. Like, even though it was on the road, that was kind of the game. Just couldn't drop that one, and although it took all 40 minutes to do so, they they avoided that, they get the win, uh, sweep that series against what's going to be one of the more bottom teams of the Sun Belt, and so you can take that move forward to this week.
2: Yeah, agreed, and I mean... <laughs> It really was an ugly game against Old Dominion that made you kind of feel not great about their game against James Madison. I know James Madison was first, but, you know, you at least thought, okay, after the initial onslaught by a team that, you know, national people have been talking about as far as Sun Belt teams have gone, you'd think that Georgia State would have played a little bit better early against Old Dominion. Um, you know, didn't happen. There was a stretch there where they played really well. Um, but... I, I, I don't know. It's hard really to take too, too much away from this week, this past weekend, because I think a lot of the good really did outshine the bad. But the bad was just don't start a game on a 17.0 on the receiving end of a 17.0 run to good teams. You know, like like you said, maybe play a little bit better. And that's a
1: 10 point point you know, deficit or like I a mean, they were down deficit. nine at Louisiana when they pulled that upset. Like you had to be in the ballpark and exactly. The, they had to do a ton of work to even get back in the ballpark. Like they were down by as much as 31 in the first half. They got it down to 13, but at that point they had done a lot of work. And I think they had held James Madison without a field goal for something like nine minutes during that stretch where they cut it to 13. And like there were about nine minutes left in the game and it's, you're probably not going to hold them another nine minutes scoreless. And so you're still down 13. And what ended up happening is James Madison until maybe the final minute or so when they hit a couple of threes, still never really found it again from the floor. Like I think second half, a lot better energy defensively, kept them out of the rhythm a lot more. But what happened was they started to get in the free throw line and they were making those all game. You know, James Madison finished the night 28 of 31 from the free throw line. Terrence Edwards was 12 of 12, TJ Bickerstaff was 11 of 12, and so they did enough there, and they were the team that was up 13, so they didn't have to do anything special. They just had to kind of keep it there, Uh, but I do want to talk about, with that game, how that game got tight again, because it was the thing to talk about from the game that Malik Ferguson came in, first time he had played in a while, and had certainly his best game as a college player and it gave you that real glimpse of what he is going to be in the future for this team. He was 4 of 7 on threes and when he came into that game like middle of the first half, game had already gotten a little bit out of hand, pretty out of hand. He was the only one who was coming in and really bringing that energy defensively. Like he ended up with a steal. So it wasn't like crazy defensive numbers, but it was more than the stuff that shows up in the box score. Like he just brought something different that had been missing for the entirety of the game to that point defensively. In addition to like, he looks like a, a really good spot up shooter. I, that was the thing. I don't think we really knew what his offensive game was. We had heard Jonas call him, I think what tough as old barn nails in the preseason. I think it's something he came back to and we spoke about him later in the year, but like, he looks like a good perimeter shooter and that's just a, a true freshman playing very sporadically.
2: Yeah, it's kind of funny. He kind of reminded me earlier of what Julian Mackey provided earlier in the year, that first game that he kind of came off the bench and had that spark. Because I mean, you're right. Like, yeah. yeah, I believe it was the Kennesaw game. Because you're right. Like, yeah, obviously the four or seven from three. Yeah, that's nice. Obviously, you know, he did look good shooting the ball. We obviously didn't expect that to happen but it seemed like the energy when he came on the court completely changed for Georgia state and it actually helped them, you know, start the run that would get them to from 31 point deficit down to 13. Um, and I mean, offensively, look, I I don't want to say that anything that he offered is gravy at this point, but in a way, I think it's a lot of, it's very helpful if a guy can give you something offensively when he is that young, um, Simply because if you don't have to teach, if you don't have to teach the defensive aspect of it, like the game isn't actually too fast that they they understand where their defensive assignments are and how they, you know, need to work within the system, if you will. I mean, you know, shooting usually comes, you know, offense usually comes for certain players at this level. So, you know, obviously most of these guys are talented to a point. Um, so yeah, I mean, if he's gonna end up being a three and d guy with you know still room to grow like that's that's huge,
1: yeah, I mean, what it tells me is like next year, without knowing the rotations or anything, who they leave, who they play more this year, or who comes in, especially with these freshmen and we talked about them with Ben, like there's some exciting prospects there on incoming freshmen for this team, but if he's playing that defense and bringing that style and he's making jump shots. That's a guy you're going to pencil in for minutes. And so I don't know how much he's going to feature. I honestly felt like just it was one of those things where because he's going so poorly, Jonas was going to bring in someone he knew was going to play hard because he's a freshman. He hasn't played a long time. And I think he probably wasn't saying, yeah, he's going to go in there and make four of seven from three and make a total difference at both ends of the court. Mm. But, you yeah, know, the point of that is I don't think he's going to be like. Pencil in for those type of minutes the rest of the season. I don't know how much he's going to play the rest of the season. It's been about the same eight, eight, nine guys, most games. And he was the exception that he had been playing like that in that game. And we saw him for three minutes against old dominion. So it didn't continue into the next game, but really important for what you can project in the future, because I'm just excited about what he is going to bring. And you say, you know, he's ready in certain aspects of defense you know, defense, I'm sure there's leaps he can continue to make. And so as we always talk about with that year two bump, you know, if he is capable of doing this, just kind of cold off the bench, what he's going to do as a sophomore going through an entire off season as a college athlete certainly makes me think he's going to be a big factor next season. Uh, the other person, and you mentioned him in that talk about Malik, that really made a difference both on Thursday and on Saturday, Julian Mackey, he's coming on. We talked about in the the week before that it was about his defense, but he brought his offense this week too. You know, he had 18 against James Madison. He followed that up with 16 against Old Dominion. Hit the game-winning three or the the go-ahead three with about a minute on the clock against Old Dominion. A guy that, you know, I'm talking about Malik, you're really thinking about next year and the future. Mackie is earning minutes present tense and should feature more and more i think and he there was some foul trouble involved but he out lucas taylor in both of these games this week lucas had four fouls so and he was still on the court in crunch time so i don't think it was like Mackie is supplanting lucas but he scored double digits both these games this week added a real difference to the offense and it was without his three-point shooting which is i think what we thought was going to be his major factor he was one of seven from three against old dominion The one was a big deal, but it wasn't what he was leaning on. He's getting inside, taking those mid-range jumpers and getting to the rim a lot. And that was maybe the part of his offensive game I wasn't expecting from him as much. It felt like when he was brought in, it was more about his shooting. He's proven me wrong. Proved me wrong this week.
2: Yeah, I think we need to start updating our projection in terms of timeline for him to now instead of next year because he really did have a he did play a difference this weekend, and I there was a point in the ODU game that I had a thought that it seemed like Georgia State's best offense and defense was when Dwan Odom was in the post, and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing specifically but the thing that I that we were all looking for this year that would have determined whether it was a good thing or a bad thing was is Georgia State able to one move the ball if he's there obviously Duan Odom is a point guard you know he's a shorter basketball player so if he's in the post he's either a sucking up a lot of defenders both big men and you know a guard that is following him um and, you know, the thing is, was Georgia State going to be able to shoot out of that set? And I think this weekend was like the first time that the offense wasn't really doing a ton. And you found somebody who wasn't shooting threes necessarily, but answered the question of what does Georgia State look like when they are not able to move the ball with Dewan outside of the paint? Obviously Julian Mackey didn't, what did he have? One assist against Old Dominion, you know, didn't, I don't think he recorded, he had two assists against uh, James Madison. I'm not saying.
1: There was, I forget which of the games it was. He had a pass down low. I think it was to Lucas Taylor. It was through traffic. It was an incredible pass. Lucas was not ready for it, but it would have been the most impressive assist maybe a Georgia State player has had all season. It was vision and execution of that play where I was like, I wish he had that because that'd be great highlight tape, and you're not going to use a turnover on a highlight, and I don't think it was his fault. <laughs> I think he was, was it, maybe a little eager. Wasn't that the Miami game? No, I was. I, I think it was this week. I, I, I've watched a lot of basketball, so it's possible I it might have blurred it, but I was pretty sure I watched that on a monitor. Um, okay. I thought I was it was at the Miami game. Gotcha. I thought it was when they were at home Um, because I I remember the play
2: that you're talking about because you're right. And like, obviously, we're not necessarily looking for him to be a crazy ball handler. But that is if, if we're talking about right now, Georgia State, and we're talking about, I mean, it's the end of the season getting to the end of the season. We're talking about guys and, you know, minutes changing, whether it be fouls, whether it be performance. If Georgia State does actually have another very capable ball handler. That is huge. That is seriously an important factor. And I don't think it's one that we really considered kind of getting down to this stretch of the season. Like, I, I would not say that point guard play has been Georgia State's issue whenever they have offensive lulls. Um, But obviously, with the way that college basketball works, guard play is just everything. And, I mean, finding guys like, you know, Ferguson and Mackey, them coming into their own this late into the season, that – Helps you play well and keeps you in a lot of games more than kind of what Georgia State had been doing, which was relying on, you know, Tanari Lane, Lucas Taylor and Odom to really carry everything.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're not going to have him be a new point guard, but I will say on the season, 23 assists to 14 turnovers, positive plus nine in the assist category. That's pretty good. You know, I don't think you're going to lean on him to be the distributor, but he can run his own, he can make his own shot, which is an important thing you need. And he's 6'2", or listed at 6'2". You're not going to have him and DeWan and, you know, Brendan Tucker all in the court at the same time. Like, almost guaranteed he's going to be playing as a 1 or a 2, and you're not going to want to go too small with him out there. And so, there's going to be times when DeWan goes off ball that you're going to need that other guard to be running the offense. And... So that's why it is important that he has shown that bit of it as well as, you know, I still think the shooting can come. It hasn't this year so far, but the the numbers he was putting up last year at JUCO, like I think he has got better shooting days ahead of him. But it's all the other stuff that he is really making an impression on me right now that he is scoring without that jump shooting pretty efficiently down low and he's making his free throws, and he's playing defense. He's scrapping, and he's bringing, kind of the same way we were talking about Malik, he's just bringing energy, and I think that's important. And I I think he's got to keep playing 20-plus minutes a night, and however that happens, it happens. It's not necessarily a punishment for someone else, more so that a guy that has been more in the periphery, I feel like, is earning minutes at this point, and he brings something that you can't do as much without for the rest of the season. We didn't talk really about... The actual win itself, but uh, kind of a wacky game Uh, against Old Dominion. Brendan Tucker, Dewan Odom, (laughs) Brendan Tucker, DeWan Odom, Jaden Turner combined for six of twenty-five, and that was kind of the, the the tale of it as far as like they just couldn't string shots together. They just there was a stretch in the mid late first half. Where they were hitting threes. You know, Tanari Lane had three threes. He was three of five from three in the first half and really got it going later on. And they end up taking a small halftime lead. They're up by four. The second half, they stretched that out. And it's again, they were taking some nice shots. They were making them. They got confident. They pushed it up to 12. And then everything went off the tracks for the same reason everything went off the tracks in the first half against Old Dominion in Atlanta. ODU went to a zone that Georgia State just could not figure out. And but they were getting some dribble penetration. They were getting some good passes to open up some stuff against their man-to-man. Smartly, ODU switched it up, and everything got really stagnant. And you had some forced threes, and just like the, the worst symptoms of when we we've seen this offense struggle—just guys trying to make the shot happen, not running the offense, not getting someone in the middle of the zone to try and open it up. And ODU ended up taking the lead again, and they were up by as much as seven with. 8.37 left in the game. They're up 59-52. And that's when they came back. And for all that you can say about they really should have had that game controlled against Old Dominion when they were up by 12, much like they should have had the game under control up at Coastal, and they lost that one. This time they fought back. They didn't give in. They were in a little bit of a hole. They were on the road in front of a good crowd that was very, very hungry for a win given the struggles that U has had this season. And they found a way. And it helps when you hold the team without a point for the final 455 of a game and just make enough plays. Talked about Mackie making that three-pointer. DeWan got an offensive rebound where he jumped like eight feet in the air and got a putback. And that's what cut it to 59-54. And it felt like an apt first play of a comeback there because they needed one of those plays to happen. There have been a couple of those putbacks that ODU had gotten that got their crowd going. And it the type of offensive rebounds that Jonas has just hated that this team has been giving up for a lot of the year. Got one of your own, kind of set it set it on their way, and then it was ugly, but made enough plays in the final minutes, got stops eventually, and got out with the win. That's all
2: that matters, really. and I think the the frustrating part is because that game felt like three different games at once. And it's kind of the same recipe that Georgia State has had the last few weeks to, I would say, I guess a month plus now, where they start really slow offensively, and then the other team, the valve that is there just completely shuts off. Then Georgia State kind of gets going offensively a little bit. And then, you know, you can always tell which direction the game's going to go based on how Georgia State looks coming out of the half. If Georgia State's hitting their shots, they're going to build a lead. And it's going to be a sizable lead. And that's exactly what happened. And then Georgia State stopped hitting their shots. ODU kind of just came back. And then ODU went incredibly cold down the stretch. And like georgia state played the best defense that they had played all after was it at
1: evening because that that game started really late very late very late um 7 p.m because the saturday games are almost always daytime tips for the league and i guess odu's got to be different gotta be um yeah like it, it you know they played some of their best
2: defense all evening and what do you know old dominion went without a field goal for the last like six minutes. I think they just had the front end of a one-on-one. Points
1: for the final 455. Last points they got were on a free throw at that point.
2: Exactly. You know, and like, yeah, Georgia State, they kind of didn't really do much offensively, but they they traded the misses and then they finally got a couple baskets to go in, which gave them the lead. Then they got the stop at the very end there on a play that, I mean, Georgia State was lucky, I would say, that that – uh, that layup attempt at the very end there, the lob play, yeah, uh, it was a bad pass. It was a
1: bad pass, yes. Uh, but at that point, you know, you're up one. It's like two point four left. Jaden Turner goes to the free throw line, hits both of them, and so now Old Dominion's got to pass at the length of the court, get a three to send it to overtime. Uh, we saw the the smart thing that probably should happen, basically any late game situation like that. Ed Namoco guarding the inbounder. Uh, Definitely, I think his size affected where that pass was going to be able to go. But it is the thing, like throughout almost the entirety of the season, the one constant we have talked about with this offense and with this team overall is like, yeah, they're inconsistent. They've got some shot makers. That Sometimes they're on, on, on. The consistent thing has been they make their free throws. And it's those late game situations where that ultimately matters. And it's been about getting into those because it's no good being a good free throw shooting team if you're not trying to protect a lead late or take the lead late, whatever it might be. If you're stuck in these games where you're trying to fight back, that's that doesn't factor into those wins as much, but they got in that position where it mattered. And Jaden Turner, five of six on the night, the team's 15 of 19 from the free throw line. And it's a team that they're not always doing the little things right. And sometimes the little things haunt them, but... One little thing they have done well most of the season, and it's mattered in a few of these wins they've started to stack up, hitting their free throws, taking advantage of their opportunities at the line. They did so on Saturday, got out with the win.
2: And, I mean, you know, uh, we cannot applaud the late-game situational stuff that Georgia State has had enough. Like, we talked about it way back when, when they, you know, when they faced that Arkansas State team, and... You know, yes, obviously, it has not been all rosy since then. Yes, they've had some slip ups. The coastal game is a big example where they had a lead and just could not hold on to it went to overtime um I think that first abstate game where they were traded they couldn't overcome you know abstate continuing to put pressure on them, and you know it hasn't necessarily been perfect, but Finding ways to get it done and execute in late game situations is so important because, I, you know, if you're doing the little things, those types of stuff on the margins, they really do matter. They really do.
1: Yeah, and the last thing I wanted to say, um, mentioned, you know, Dewan Odom, Brendan, uh, Jaden collectively, not great from the floor, but I just want to say about Odom, he was plus, I think, plus three. He had a plus on a night where he was two of nine shooting. Yeah, he had five assists. He was one of those guys helping the free throw line. He was four of six on his free throws. And, you know, go back and look at last year's box scores for the sheer volume of shots he was taking all the way through when he was healthy. He has played a different role this year. And there have been nights where he hasn't brought it offensively. And he's had either poor percentages, or just not that many points, not that many shot attempts at all. But he is finding a way to be a positive for this team. And I think that's really been a, a nice undercurrent as they've put some wins together. He's not been the star, and I think we were kind of expecting that, that he'd be the leading scorer, kind of be the focal point of this team. He's not been, but he is still putting his imprint on and helping them, even on a night where he missed seven of the nine shots he took from the floor.
0: Up next for the Panthers, four straight at home to finish the regular season. This week, they'll host Coastal Carolina at 7 p.m. on Wednesday night and Texas State Saturday at 2 The Chanticleers are winners of their last two, and they came back from double digits down against Georgia State and Conway to win 85-83 in overtime back on January 27th. They're 8-17 and 5-9 in conference play. As for the Bobcats of Texas State, this will be their first regular season game in Atlanta since January 24th, 2020. They start the week 13th in the Sunbelt standings with a 4-9 conference record, but they gave league leaders Appalachian State one of their two conference losses on February 7th. They are eleven and sixteen overall, gentlemen. Thoughts on these upcoming home games? You gotta win these games. Like this, is a, it's not a
2: must win or whatever, but like you, you gotta win these games.
1: Yeah, I mean, Georgia State sitting here, they're twelve and fourteen right now, six and eight in conference play. They got two games at home, two games they should win. They'll be favored to win. Win those, you're at 14 and 14, 8 and 8. 500 across the board. And you're also potentially in really good shape for the conference tournament. And where I go with that is that 6 and 8 record they currently have in conference play leaves them in eighth place in the conference. Marshall is one above them, one game above them, and one seat above them at 7 and 7. They play James Madison and App this week, both at home, but potentially not that hard to paint a picture where they lose both those games. That's someone you can jump in the standings if you take care of your business this week. But then you look below yourself in the standings. Nine to 12 are all teams tied at five and nine. That is ULM, South Alabama, Georgia, Southern, Coastal Carolina. Hey, you're you're playing. It, ULM host UL uh Louisiana and Troy. It's home games, but again, like with Marshall, you could see them losing those games. Uh, South Alabama goes to Southern Miss and Arkansas State, who Arkansas State is probably the, the surprise team under the top group because they're playing really well right now. Uh, they're making a real case for like the team you least want to play in the tournament uh, if you're one of those top seeds because of how they score the ball. South Alabama could lose one or both those games. Georgia Southern plays Texas State uh, before State does, and they also play James Madison, Coastal, Georgia State, and Old Dominion. If you win the, your two games this week, it's possible some of the teams I just named are going to lose one or both of your games, both of their games. Very easy to say they could lose both of them. And so the reason I say all of that is to say, if you go 2-0 this week, there's a chance you have locked down a first round bye in the Sunbelt tournament before you even play your final two games. And that's important because you're playing James Madison and Marshall next week. So one of those games is a team that just beat you by 20. The other team beat you in Huntington when you played them on the road. And so if you can get through this week and win the two most winnable games left on your four-game schedule, you might do enough to get yourself all the way to guaranteeing yourself not playing on that Tuesday of Sunbelt Tournament Week, getting all the way to the second round. And if you don't, you're going to have to probably pull an upset or get some help if you go one and one next week at home and hope that some other teams also lose and that that's you're going to be you're sweating all the way to the end of the conference season to see where you're going to end up seed line wise.
2: Yeah, and I, I like how you talked about the implications, because I think if they're important. Um, I You know, something else that I thought of, just if you think about what 500 this weekend means to this Georgia State team. And given where they were last year and given what we've seen from the Panthers the last, let's call it a decade, right? 500 is huge. It might not be what we thought it was going to be. It might not be the, you know, this basketball program has huge expectations to basically be, you know, playing on the last few days of the Sunbelt tournament every single year, if not going to the NCAA tournament. And I understand that. They won 10 games last year. Getting to the point where you just have to split your last weekend to GOAT and be
1: 500, that is that is a huge accomplishment for this team. They were 9-13 not that long ago. Mm-hmm. And the other part of it is if you win two here, that's 5-6. of Quote-unquote, playing your best ball season. You can't spell it out better than that. Doesn't mean the games are gimmies. You know, it's teams I think you should beat, especially at home. The formula for Coastal is what you were doing against Coastal for most of that game before really let it slip, let them get some momentum. I think what it would give you some encouragement heading into this one is the way they've started playing the post, which is where they got dominated in the second half in that game, has changed drastically. As we spelled out really on that post pod talking about the Louisiana and Miami games. And we saw more of that this week. Although. You know, Old Dominion really wasn't playing that same type of like they weren't having that dominant post guy they were leaning on. So it wasn't nearly as pronounced in that game. But I still think it's going to be a factor. And certainly this was the game that maybe forced them to start playing that way in the first place. So you're going to get another crack at that. And that should help you get over the line because Coastal's has not been a very good defensive team all year. And that's what we saw for a large portion of that game. So you just got to put 40 minutes together this time because you had a pretty good game plan against them in Conway. You played well for most of that game, but then you played pretty poorly down the stretch and it cost you. Texas State is a weird one because they are last in the country in the percentage of their total shots being three-pointers. 60.7% of their point distribution comes from two-point baskets. That is second in the country. And so, I don't know if they're laying in wait for the one team they're gonna just bomb some threes against and but it doesn't really seem like it's a focal point, so it's gonna be another team where you playing nitty gritty in the post is gonna make a difference against they did beat app so it, you know it's a team that beat you, and it's a team that is one of only two to have beaten the current conference leaders, one of the better teams in the conference this season, so neither is a gimme, neither is a team you can really take lightly, but given that their home games. Just I'll I'll end it with what David started with. You just gotta is the thing. Yeah,
2: like it's it would be one thing if Georgia State had a little bit of breathing room and, you know, there is a version of. No, I mean, honestly, there isn't a version of them not winning at least one of these games and good things happen. I mean, if they're not winning these games, they're more than likely not beating Marshall and James Madison. So you really just have to have these
1: games. And weirdly, like, you had a 20-point loss last week. I said I was going to end, but I was going to throw this on as well, I guess. Um, I still don't feel that discouraged vis-a-vis where the team was before that. Like, you had a pretty bad result and an ugly win, and my stance and my view of the team didn't really change from those. Like I said at the start of the whole basketball discussion, like, you did what you needed to do, getting that win against Old Dominion, and the rest of it, we saw a different team... Starting from the Louisiana game and some of those traits continued through this last week and you're getting new contributions from guys like Julian Mackey. And so it does feel like things are still turning in a decent direction. You just got to put that to practice when you play these two teams this week.
0: Okay, let's go ahead and move on. Talk about the women's basketball team who also had a one in one week as the Lady Panthers completed a sweep of James Madison on Thursday night winning in Harrisonburg 73 to 62. They went on to drop Saturday's contest in Boone 93-67 to Appalachian State. They're now 15-10 on the season and 9-5 in the Sun Belt, sitting in fifth outside the double buys on a tiebreaker with Old Dominion. This week, they're also at home for both games, hosting Coastal Carolina on Thursday evening before getting their shot at revenge at ODU Saturday at 5 p.m. Gentlemen, thoughts on the women's basketball team?
1: Same takeaway I have with the men's uh, the split kind of does the job. Probably would have been less surprising if you if you go and you beat App State, who you're above in the standings, and lose to James Madison. But it was an impressive win against the Dukes on Thursday. And, look, when a team shoots 14 of 33 against you from three and you commit 20 turnovers, like, that's just a game that, that's, that happens. You're going to have an off night. This team has been putting together a lot of good performances, and you're on the road, the second day of a back to back, heading up to the mountains. Like, I don't write it off entirely because never want to lose by that much to a conference opponent, particularly one that you were higher than in the standings. But the win you got on Thursday matters a great deal, and you can work with a one in one week on the road as long as you keep taking care of business. Well, for the final time, I think take care of business at home this week.
2: Yeah, I mean, you never want to lose games. Um, And I don't even think you're chalking it up to anything. Just, you know, people have bad games. Like that happens to sports, you know, can always have a winner and can always play well. And Um, the corollary, sometimes the other team have good games. And that happens. (laughs) Exactly. You know, I feel like we never want to give credit to, you know, other teams also being good. And hey, look at that. Georgia State ran into a team that also was good on a day. Um, you know, I don't think there's anything super pressing that you need to really take away from the Abstate State game. I mean, you know, they scored 67 points and, you know, I believe that's below their season average, but what, four people were still in double digits. I mean, I remember you talking about that a month ago, almost two months ago, about how, you know, the scoring has still been there. And yeah, you know what? They shot four or seven from three and Abstate State aggressively did not. <laughs> So, you know, you take so much more out of the James Madison game, ironically, where only two people scored in double digits, but where ironically only two people scored in double digits. But at the same time, though, the field goal percentage was a little bit better. You know, the free throw percentage was lower, but, you know, 10 of 14, they just didn't have as many opportunities as they did versus the App State game. Didn't commit a ton of turnovers where well, they did commit a ton of turnovers against App State. So, you know, by the balance, you kind of take the good with the bad here with this weekend, kind of similar to how the men was, like you said.
1: Yeah. Tolliver with 20, Maya Williams with 15, plus 11 on the glass against James Madison, and you know, they were down at halftime. It took, you know, fighting back a little bit in the third quarter and then You outscored them 19-10 in the fourth quarter. Really ended the game on a real high. And that follows on from when you played them in Atlanta. It was the same thing. Uh, The margin got cut a little bit near the end in Atlanta, but outscored James Madison 25-22 in the fourth quarter of that game where you won 82-72 and also outscored them 22-14 in the third quarter. And so you love a team making those plays, being better, when the clock gets shorter, and you're later in the game, saw that on display Thursday in Harrisonburg got an important win that it's important because I'm going to go into more tiebreaker standings talk with the women's team as I do with the men's team. They're in a pretty good spot at the top of the standings as far as having tiebreakers having head to heads over a lot of the teams they could be tied with if they're in such a situation at the end of the year because they're now 2 0 against James Madison. So even though James Madison is to date the only team in the conference to have beaten Marshall, if they were tied, it wouldn't get to that because it's straight up head to head first, and you've got the sweep over the, the Dukes. You're 1 0 against Troy as well. And so that's a win that not many teams have. And you're also, if you end up tied with them, you've got the head to head tiebreak on them. The important factor in this is the upcoming game against Old Dominion, getting a chance to level that series because. The Monarchs won in Norfolk when these teams first played. So if you lose this game to them in Atlanta, they'll have that tiebreak and you don't have that perfect symmetry. Uh, could really make the difference between them getting the double bye and ending in the top four or not. So this is a not just because you want to win every game, but like that game certainly is going to be. Very important as far as. There's other teams below, like ULM and Southern Miss, that have that head-to-head tiebreak on you, but they have to make up some progress to get to where that's a factor. You've got a game against Coastal this week that's 8 of 19, 13th in the conference, 2 of 12. You play them twice. You have not played Coastal once. And so in your final four games of the regular season, you've got the same team twice who feels like one of the better shots of a win that this conference has to offer. And so... You win against Old Dominion and you take care of business against Coastal in those two times you play them the rest of the way. That's three of your final four games. You're racking up wins that's definitely gonna help them finish as high as they can when all is said and done.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. and I mean that's that's really important just kind of for the vibes. You know, we talked last week about how, you know, some games you wanna rest players and some games you don't want to players and i don't think georgia state is at any point going to think about doing that but you know the the more you take care of business this week the more likely it is that it you know you kind of have that conversation depending on how certain things shake out you know obviously you want to win obviously even going into the last week it, you know if georgia state does get the weekend sweep this week against coastal carolina and old dominion You know, Marshall's tough. Not saying that Georgia State's going to arrest anybody versus Marshall because that would be kind of crazy. But, you know, there's a world where things kind of get set before they have to tip off against Coastal Carolina for that last game of the season on the 1st of March. And, you know, you feel good about their chances at one winning that game and maybe not going two balls to the wall. Plus also, you know, even if you do play players, if Georgia State does win this week, you get at least one
1: by maybe two.
2: Yep, exactly. You know, take care of business and, you know, you're not going to have to be playing again for another week, I believe. Yeah, because it doesn't the Sunbelt yeah, Tournament... It'll be on the Friday.
1: It'll be on the Fridays that they'd be first playing, which is totally foreign the way the Sunbelt Tournament's gone for this team in years past. I did not work out all the permutations. I don't think it's nearly as simple because there aren't... There's like a... The, the four-way tie situation spanning across that double-buy spot as I laid out, but... I think winning games this week will help at home. Like the simplest way you can say it is we'll check where the math is next week. It'll be a lot simpler, a lot less permutations going on as there's only two games left and opportunity at home this late in the season. You can't turn down. I know that the basis
2: of our analysis is more than winning games is good and important, but you know, sometimes it's pretty simple.
1: (laughs) There's also sometimes you play bad and sometimes the other team plays good. Like we're covering all of our basic sports takeaways.
0: All right, let's go ahead and move on to talk about baseball. It was a one and two weekend to start the year for the Buslot Boys as they couldn't keep a momentum of a twelve to three opening day win over New Orleans going, falling four to two and eight to four on Saturday and Sunday respectively to drop their first series of twenty twenty four. They will have their home opener on Tuesday at three PM versus UGA, who are fresh off a sweep of UNC Asheville this past weekend before hosting Seton Hall for a three-game set this weekend. The Pirates are themselves 2-1. and Those game times are 4 p.m., 2 p.m., and 1 p.m. on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, respectively. Gentlemen, thoughts on this opening stand for the Up Boys? Continuing our
1: trend of generic basic sports takeaways, it's just one series is the thing. Um, Concerning underlying numbers, especially on the pitching side, you you look at it, Collectively, the Jersey pitching staff in these three games had 30 walks or hit by pitches and 11 wild pitches or box. Conversely, New Orleans had nine walks and hit by pitches and just one wild pitch, no box. So, would not surprise you to learn that the team that had less in each of those numbers won this series. Um, it was the one thing where Coach Stravinov felt like he had some of the pieces. It was about finding where they fit together and that. I think we gave a little bit of a preamble of like, there might be a little bit of that stuff to work out for this team in the early going. We'll see how it plays out. And it it was rough this week. Uh, The other factor being, it's a weird weather weekend, especially the first game, which the game they won, the start time was delayed ultimately by, I think, two or three hours uh, because of some weather in the area. And so it's a factor as well. Uh, You're going to need some more data to really sort this out. But obviously... Not a backbreaking series loss, but it's a bummer to start out the season on kind of a negative womp womp. Um, and it was a series I think they wanted for RPI purposes and just uh, all of that. It, it means that you lose this series, you're going to try and make it up in another series. Maybe sweeping a four game set previously, you're banking on maybe just winning three or four, or finding a way to sweep this weekend against Seton Hall as a way to get that win back. But uh, still too early to th- throw up alarm bells. But you know, you repeat that type of pitching performance and that just total inability to find a plate and Sunbelt play and teams are going to just roast you. And so clearly it can't continue much longer. We're just going to have to see if it's a trend or if it's just one of those little blips.
2: Uh, Georgia State, Georgia State baseball. Um, just uh, you're right. It's way too early to make any grand conclusions um, from this past weekend. I'm not going to hit you with a butt, but I will offer this. Over the last couple of years, Georgia State has been known to do a couple of things. Hit a ton of homers and pitch very poorly at times. And this weekend series was kind of just another manifestation of that, where the Friday game hit a ton of homers, pitched well. The Saturday game, the offense didn't hit anything really. And then pitched okay, and then the Sunday game, the offense kind of came back, but then the pitching went bad, and it's like you just you really just need i i think there's talent like the 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 funny thing about it is every year we kind of get to that late march ish era of the season, you know, maybe kind of mid April, and the pitching stabilizes it stabilizes in a very Similar way that it always does. It's just the damage sometimes is done, and that's when you kind of get to the offensive lulls. You know, it happened in twenty twenty three. It happened in twenty twenty two. And you just you really need both sides to come together and just be a little bit more consistent within themselves. You know, obviously you're not going to score twelve runs every single game. That would be great, but it's not going to happen. You're also not going to give up eight runs every single game. And you know that's that's all I'm saying. They just need to find ways to smooth out the performance and find a way to still if they don't have the pitching that day, use the bats. If they don't have the bats, then make sure the pitching is good because you just you need to find a ways to win when one side isn't really up to snuff. And it's just something that they have struggled with over the last couple of years. It's really been such an all-or-nothing team. You know, there are very few 1-0 wins, is what I'm trying to say. You know, obviously you don't want to win games 1-0, but, you know, you really need to have both sides of the ball complement each other in a way that just didn't happen this weekend.
1: Yeah, I guess some bright spots uh, and from some new faces at that. Henry Kohler, Davidson transfer... Comes in his first series, leads the team in average. He was 5 of 13, had one of the five home runs the team uh, put together all in that Friday game. Uh, Leak Boynton had two home runs. Uh, shocker, he's going to keep hitting home runs. He wow. continued that on from last season. Had two this of them in my... the opener.
2: I, I definitely saw on Twitter uh, the I think the baseball team had like a video of it because that was the game on ESPN Plus and I was like, oh wow, baseball has started. So Luke Boyton has hit a homer. This is my shocked face.
1: And then the other thing, your Saturday starter Ross Norman was a freshman making his first start, and he gave you five and a third, only two hits, two runs, both earned. He had four walks, so he was part of the lack of control at times, and I think that probably also. Was a contributing factor to him only going five and a third and not getting through that sixth inning. But even though didn't give you the win, I think he gave you everything you needed in that game. Especially a guy making his first collegiate start. And so as you're looking at who do you have, who is working, you know, if you're expecting freshmen to go through some lumps, but ultimately their their better days are ahead of them. You know, if these are his lumps, and it's just about Maybe have a little bit finer control so you can work longer into games. That is totally workable. Um, Had talked with Coach Stromdahl before the season. It sounded like Brady Jones, uh, who went three scoreless or three innings with two runs uh, allowed, but neither of them were earned. He had four strikeouts. He ended up getting the win for Friday's game. In a relief role, and it was the same with Davis Chastain in the Saturday game who picked up the loss. He had two innings. He ended up allowing one run, which was the difference making a run, and that's why he picked up the loss. But two guys that you could have looked at at the end of last year and wondered if they were going to play starting roles. Seems like for now they're going to be playing more like long bridge guys. And I guess my only thing is is if you're getting less consistently and not getting as many innings from this, the guys you would put ahead them as starters then does that conversation switch back and do you try and stretch them out and make them those starters? Because if plan A isn't working, you got to pivot to something. And I do think that Brady Jones is one of the better pitchers on this staff. And so at a certain point, it might make sense to revisit that because you're going to want to give a guy like that the ball more often than some of the other guys. But like I say, too early to really make any real shakeups in that regard. I'm curious when the rotation for this weekend comes out against Seton Hall. If anything changes or if the staff is thinking the same way that it's like, it's one game, got to let them keep finding it in this early season. So I'll certainly be watching that as well. That will be coming later in the week as we get closer to those three games against the Pirates.
2: Yeah, it's still early season. You know, the vibes are still going to be good. People are still excited for baseball. Um, If you are watching Georgia State baseball, you should be excited because, I mean, they they still can be good. You know, this isn't to say that it's going to be consistent. It's just, you know, one series, three games. They'll be fine.
1: And we wanted to end the podcast uh, talking about some sad sports news that came across everyone's feed the last couple of days. Uh, lefty Drizelle, Georgia State coach from 1997 to 2003. longtime legendary coach at Maryland. Coach who's got 100 career wins at four different schools, Davidson, Maryland, James Madison, and Georgia State. Died at the age of 92. Uh, we are the post-lefty Georgia State attendees, so we don't have the good stories. Uh, we had Dave Cohen, voice of the Panthers, on a couple of months ago, and he had some good stories from that era. Uh, Ben Moore compiled some stories from his players and from other guys around Georgia State Athletics that he put on Panther Talk that is a great read for remembering the legacy of what Lefty did at Georgia State because the fact of the matter is, without him, Georgia State basketball and Georgia State athletics as a whole is probably not what it is today. You know, the stamp that he put on the program in presently is, you know, Jonas Hayes was coming around Georgia State about the time he was the head coach, and it put that in. He was coming down and using the sports arena, and it it made him think about Georgia State to where now, twenty years after the fact, he was taking the job. But beyond that, he really brought the consistent success this program had never had, and in our own little pocket here in Atlanta, certainly meant a lot. And he's a guy that meant a lot to the sport of college basketball. So prayers for him and his for his family as a. They mourn the loss of Lefty Driesell at the age of ninety-two.
2: Absolutely, you know we here at Thursday Night could not ever, ever say enough wonderful things about Lefty Driesell. Even though he was a little bit before our time, um, well, actually a lot bit before our time. Um, but I, I can also state for a fact that we are not sitting here at all had he not come to Georgia State. You know, your comment about the success, like there was. Not the level of success that Georgia State is used to now prior to him being here. And that's really kind of what started it and got Georgia State to be the program that they are now and where people are looking for it. So obviously he will be missed. Obviously, you know, a titan for this school, university regardless of just, you know, his contributions on, you know, the basketball court for them. So, definitely going to be missed in the community and, you know, hope hope the best for his family and, you know, wish wish the people can accept and grieve in their own special ways.
0: All right. And of course, before we get you out of here, we do need to go through everything happening in Georgia State Athletics this week, starting on the release of the podcast Tuesday, uh women's golf Wrapping up at the Great River Cup in Gulfport, Mississippi. Men's golf wrapping up at the Wexford Intercollegiate in Hilton Head, South Carolina. Baseball playing UGA in Atlanta at 3 p.m. You can listen to that game live on WGTJFM 97.5. Moving on to Wednesday. Softball travels just up the road to Georgia Tech. That face the yellow jackets at 5 p.m. While men's basketball hosts Coastal Carolina in the Convocation Center at 7. You can watch that game on ESPN Plus or listen to Dave Cohen live on the call, WRSFM 88.5. Moving on to Thursday, as we mentioned earlier, women's basketball hosts Coastal Carolina at 6.30. You can catch that game on ESPN Plus. And then on Friday, Beach Volleyball heads down to Tampa, Florida for the Tampa Invitational, playing FAU at 9 a.m., Arizona State at 1 p.m., and then softball hosts the I-75 Challenge playing Robert Morris in a doubleheader at 2 p.m. and 4 p.m., baseball hosts Seton Hall at 4, and men's tennis travels down to Tallahassee to play Florida State at 6.30 p.m. Moving on to Saturday, beach volleyball continues in the Tampa Invitational, playing Tampa at 10 a.m., and then later in the day, South Carolina at 2 p.m., while women's tennis plays Presbyterian in Atlanta at 10 a.m., Softball plays Ball State at noon. Men's basketball hosts Texas State at 2 p.m. You can catch that game on ESPN Plus or listen to Dave Cohen live on the call on WGTJFM at 97.5, while baseball plays Seton Hall in their second game of that series at 2. And women's basketball hosts Old Dominion in the Convocation Center at 5 p.m. And you can catch that game on ESPN Plus. Moving on to Sunday, softball wraps up the I-75 challenge playing Army at 11 a.m. Men's Tennis hosts UNC Wilmington in Atlanta at noon, and baseball plays the final game of their series with Seton Hall at 1 p.m. That's everything happening before the next time we see you on the Thursday Night Podcast. Get out there, support the Panthers, and we'll see you next week.